If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, Sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out of blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And Sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is the World According to Zig podcast for April 14th, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned totally upside down. It has been a big week for the Ziegler family. We celebrated the second birthday of my two-year-old daughter, Diana. That was a lot of fun. Uh, Grace Ziegler, she uh, learned how to ride a bike. So uh, that was belated because uh, she, a couple of years ago, witnessed a friend of hers on a bike, literally right after she gets her bike, uh, like in the first couple of days, a friend of hers who's also riding a bike breaks her arm right in front of her. So that, that put a huge block on uh, whether or not uh, Grace was going to learn. But she finally did learn to ride a bike uh, this week. And uh, for Daddy Ziegler, uh, this, is, this week is a, a national holiday. Uh, for me, it's the most important holiday of the year, which is the Masters Golf Tournament. And uh, I am doing this uh, podcast um, under a bit of protest. Uh, we're doing it earlier than we normally would. This is not the way that I would have preferred to have it done. But the, the, anything that can go wrong in John Ziegler's life will go wrong. So we're doing it early on Sunday, right in the middle of the Masters, uh, which uh, was not supposed to happen because the Masters Golf Tournament is supposed to be played on Sunday afternoons forever and ever and ever in the history of the tournament. That's when it finishes up. We were going to do uh, today's podcast early so that I could get back and watch it. This was even before I had any idea that uh, Tiger Woods might be uh, creating the biggest history of his entire career by winning what would likely be his final major championship. But then Mother Nature uh, took over, and for the first time in history, they have moved the final round of the Masters to early in the morning. So I'm doing this podcast right in the middle of the final round of the Masters. Uh, A lesser man would have just said, screw the whole thing, but I'm not a lesser man. For better or for worse. So uh, we're doing both podcasts today. If you're interested in the latest Trump news, uh, please go to, uh, well, you can go to freespeechbroadcasting.com and check out Individual One, the Individual One podcast. Uh, but the Individual One podcast is all about the presidency of Donald J. Trump. The World According to Zig podcast is pretty much everything else that happens in uh, my world and things that I'm interested in. And as you know, if you've been paying attention at all, I've been very interested over the last month or so 
in this HBO pseudo-documentary called Leaving Neverland. By the way, I'll have some thoughts on the Masters a little bit later on uh, and Tiger Woods in the podcast. But first, I want to get to uh, Michael Jackson and Leaving Neverland, as we have done uh, probably more work on this than almost anybody else in America uh, on what a fraud this HBO film really is. And I've mentioned previously that in Great Britain, there's a British investigative journalist by the name of Charles Thompson, who is basically a kindred spirit to John Ziegler in almost every way, but specifically with regard to leaving Neverland and the media's horrendous, dreadful handling of it. And so I asked Charles to come on the program, and he has graciously agreed to do so. And uh, he joins us from just outside of London. Charles Thompson, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, being with us. Uh, And uh, I've admired your work from afar, uh, not just on the uh, Jackson case, but on the media in general. And so why don't we start there? Give us a sense of your extensive background as quickly as you can on the Jackson case, as well as on other child sex abuse cases that you have investigated. Okay, so um, I, I currently work as the chief reporter at a large newspaper series, a regional newspaper series in the U.K., called the Yellow Advertiser series, which runs across Essex and East London. So a large um, area. We put out a number of titles, do hundreds of thousands of papers a week. And um, part of my job at that newspaper series is investigative reporting and crime and court reporting. And so during my time there, I've covered a lot of um, cases, including uh, child abuse cases, uh, including um, child murders, and uh, my background on the Michael Jackson case precedes that. Uh, before I was working in the regional press, I was a freelance writer, and um, my, I kind of made my name in the Michael Jackson world in 2010 on the fifth anniversary of the verdict in Michael Jackson's trial. Um, what I did was I spent a couple of months reading or rereading the, the trial transcripts and then comparing them to... Um, newspaper and TV archives. So I was looking at what the testimony was on particular days compared to the way that testimony was reported by the media. And then I wrote an article for Huffington Post, um, which was all about that discrepancy and how the media's coverage was really inaccurate and incredibly biased. Now, to be clear, because I I get this myself whenever uh, you're a contrarian voice, especially on a case involving child sex abuse, People think you're somehow a child sex abuse enabler or something even worse than that. Uh, But you're exactly the opposite. In fact, uh, you've been uh, honored for your work in other uh, child sex abuse cases. Uh, So give us a sense of how the Michael Jackson case compares to other cases you have covered with regard to specifically the lack of evidence against him. Well, I mean, the the main difference is, and it it stems in large part from who Michael Jackson is, but in any other case that I've ever covered, you've you've not had a huge multi-million dollar motive to lie. So in the Michael Jackson case, um, there has never, ever been an accuser who has just gone to the police, walked into a police station or made a phone call to the police and said, hi, I was abused and I want to report it, and has then cooperated with the police and given a consistent and coherent version of events. That literally never happened. Every single accuser of Michael Jackson has always had an enormous financial motive 
and has always gone on to completely discredit themselves, contradict themselves, contradict other people, keep changing their stories, get caught in blatant lies and perjury. There's never been an accuser against Michael Jackson um, who has actually withstood scrutiny. Um, and, you know, it's not because sometimes, sometimes people say, um, oh, well, that's just because Michael Jackson had the resources to pay for fantastic lawyers. But if you look at, for instance, the recent documentary, um, a lot of the discrepancies in that documentary didn't need uh, highfalutin lawyers to point them out. It was Michael Jackson's fans who were just finding massive, glaring inaccuracies and lies in this documentary, which the, the supposed professional journalists who made the documentary somehow managed to miss. That's all very well said, but I want to make sure that we make clear about one point. The, the scenario that you outline there of a, an, a, an abused person going to the police and saying, hey, look, this happened to me, the, um, the, the other side would say, well, my gosh, we can't expect that to happen. The reality is that does occasionally happen, and these cases often have real hard evidence, do they not? Well, for sure. I would say in most cases, abuse only comes to light because somebody decides to report it. But well, the point I'm really making is that these people were presented with a choice of seeking justice or seeking money, and they have invariably sought money. So uh, the Chandler case was deliberately set up to um, coincide exactly with a civil suit. Then um, there was the Arviso case where the mother tried to get a civil lawyer and failed and only went to the police when the civil lawyer said, you need a conviction before we represent you. And then you've got... Uh, Wade Robertson and Jimmy Safechuck, who go straight to a civil lawyer. So in Michael Jackson's case, it will, even those who choose to disclose, they, they do not go to the police and say, I want to disclose abuse. They go running to a lawyer and say, I want millions of dollars. Um, but yeah, I mean, in many cases, there is um, hard evidence. There will be forensic evidence, or there will be um, corroborative witnesses, or, uh, you know, they'll, the uh, abuse will be reported and be made public, and then you'll get a flood of other victims come forward. And in Michael Jackson's case, none of this is uh, true. It's all completely contrary to a, a traditional case. So, Charles, let's talk specifically about James Safechuck and Wade Robson. They're the stars of this HBO, quote-unquote, documentary, Leaving Neverland, that the both of us have been talking an awful lot about over the last uh, several weeks. How sure are you that they are not telling the truth in that movie? I think we can be sure that they are not telling the truth about certain parts of their story. And for me, that's all you need. You know, if I'm sitting on a jury and I discover that the star witness has lied about one or two parts of their story under oath, then I must ask myself the question, well, if they're lying about that, how can I be sure that they're not lying about everything? Um, and so, you know, you look at Jimmy Safechuck, for example, there is the massive, massive problem of the train station. So Jimmy Savechuck is suing Michael Jackson's estate. Presently, he's been suing the Jackson estate for five years, and he stated repeatedly under oath on penalty of perjury, I was abused from 1988 until 1992. The reason my abuse stopped in 92 was because Michael Jackson had a predilection for prepubescent boys, and when boys went into puberty and started getting too big, he would go off of them, and he would replace them with other younger boys. This is my story. My abuse finished in 1992. He says in the documentary 
1988-89, Michael Jackson and I had what he refers to as a honeymoon period. And during this honeymoon period, Michael Jackson abused me in all different places at the Neverland Ranch. One of those places was the train station. So he specifically places his abuse at the train station early in his story of abuse. But we know also that his story of abuse under oath ends in 1992, and then we discover about a month after the film comes out that that train station was not constructed and opened until mid-1994. So we know that that story cannot be true, particularly the version of the story which places the abuse in the train station in 1988-89. So once we know that Jimmy Safechuck has told a very vivid story about something which cannot possibly be true, we must ask ourselves, well, what else about his story is not true? And if you can't trust that particular part of the story, then how can you trust anything else he's saying? If you're sitting on a jury, you can't convict. You can't convict based on this guy's testimony because you know that at least some of his testimony is perjured. So this is a, it's a catastrophic problem. And you've got Oprah Winfrey this week on TV saying, basically dismissing a six-year discrepancy in the timeline where he's saying it happened in 88, 89, and we know that it can't have happened, if it ever did happen, until at least mid-1994. That, that's a, a huge discrepancy in the timeline, and you've got Oprah Winfrey dismissing it as, oh, just because they can't remember if it was on a Wednesday or a Thursday, that doesn't mean they're not telling the truth. You know, this is, it's a catastrophic problem uh, in the safe chunk allegations, and uh, my position is, if he's not telling the truth about the train station, I cannot invest in anything else that he's telling me. I agree with you, although unfortunately the media certainly doesn't look at it that way. And taking what Oprah said to Trevor, Trevor Noah on a comedy show uh, here in America this week, she took the tack that I had predicted originally that Dan Reed, the director of the film, would take, which is the normal way that everything that a an alleged victim of child sex abuse says is excused, regardless of how absurd at times it can be, by simply blaming the trauma not wanting to get into the details and saying that the bigger picture is what really matters. She took that tack knowing that, that, especially coming from Oprah, who is seen as royalty in this country, that that wouldn't be questioned. I was stunned that Dan Reed wasn't smart enough to go down that road, and he actually acknowledged that, that yes, uh, the, uh, the, the date of the abuse was wrong, uh, but we now know that he was really abused much later than we previously thought, which, of course, blows up his entire narrative. Did you share my uh, shock and confusion over the way Dan Reed handled this in comparison to Oprah Winfrey? Yeah, I mean, well, basically, Dan Reed's response to the discrepancy in the timeline was to accuse his own star witness of perjury, because we know that James Safechuck has signed at least two sworn declarations, which end with the line, I signed this statement under penalty of perjury, uh, where he says that he was never abused after 1992. So for Dan Reed to kind of just fire off a tweet on off the cuff, where he says, uh, well, no, James uh, was abused after the train station was constructed. Well, that, that means he's accusing his own star witness of perjury. Um, so that was a very bizarre response. But I think Dan Reed's entire response to the criticism of the documentary has been quite bizarre, to be honest. He's effectively engaged in a campaign of online trolling, uh, getting into quite petty 
tit-for-tat arguments and back-and-forths with fans. Um, and he, he's not behaved particularly professionally, in my opinion. Um, but then again, I don't think that the documentary was a particularly professional job either. What do you make of him in general? I, I, I uh, You and I have uh, communicated uh, via direct message on Twitter about him. I'm curious, what, what do you, and you asked me, what, what do I make of him? And I, I think he's, he's not very bright, uh, he's arrogant, and he's invested in a myth. Uh, what is your take on Dan Reed? Well, you know, this is a guy who's won BAFTA awards, so you would think that he's quite a serious journalist, but I mean, my only experience of Dan Reed is through um, this documentary and the way he's promoted it and the way he's reacted to the criticism of it, and uh, I just, uh, it's left me a gulp, really. I just can't believe sometimes the things he says, uh, the things he tweets. Um, it's very bizarre. I I just can't work him out, really. The question I was asking you was, I think, uh, do you think he really, do you think he knows how crazy some of what he's tweeting sounds? You know, like the Safe Chuck thing, where he he basically responded to criticism of his own documentary by throwing his star witness under a bus and saying, well, it's not my fault. It's because the guy at the center of my film is a perjurer. I mean... A crazy thing to do. He could have just said nothing. Um, it's actually even worse, than, Charles. It's actually even worse than that. He blows apart not just his star witness's credibility and accuses him of perjury. He blows apart the entire narrative of the film, which is that Michael Jackson moves on from one boy to the next once they hit puberty, because now Safe Chuck's 16 or 17 years old and larger than Michael Jackson. Photos prove this. So uh, it's even stranger than that. And uh, I, part of I, I, what I'm a little frustrated by, Charles, and there's a lot of things about this case that frustrate me, I'm wondering if in getting into the details, we haven't played into their game on this. Because, frankly, yeah, the safe chuck thing is huge with the train station, and there's similar situations with regard to Robson, and uh, and also there's the issue of whether or not Safecheck lied about whether or not Michael Jackson would have called him in 2005 to testify at his trial, which we know is absurd because the judge had already ruled he wasn't allowed into the trial. So there's all sorts of other things. But to me, Charles, aren't we playing into their game by even accepting the premise of the film which is that somehow these guys could wait until middle age after making all sorts of positive statements and actions towards Michael Jackson for many, many years, even after he's dead, and then suddenly come forward with uncorroborated stories seeking millions and millions of dollars and have that be taken seriously. Do you see where I'm going with that? Yeah, I mean, uh, when you start getting into the detail... What you do then is you're kind of ignoring the the base bizarreness of the story. I, I agree. So, you know, at, even at its very core, you have two men who have previously testified under oath, uh, one of them on multiple occasions, uh, under intense prosecutorial cross-examination, and has maintained for 20 years a consistent story about Michael Jackson being innocent. And then they come forward and completely change their story. Now, that in itself is discrediting. Just the fact that they've told one story oath, uh, one, told one story under oath, and then they've told another story under oath, that's 
that is discrediting in, the, in and of itself. And then you start getting involved in the detail, and sometimes people can shoot down the detail. They can go, oh, well, that, that's just trauma, that's, as you said. But um, e- even at its very core, this is a, an essentially not believable story um, that these two guys would consistently insist that Michael Jackson was innocent and then suddenly would only remember that he was actually guilty after all when they both hit financial problems and decide they want to sue his estate. That in and of itself is discrediting. Not to mention, and I, you know, there's so many, one of the biggest problems we have is there's so much information on our side, it takes t- too long to get to it all, and, and ever, invariably you forget some of it. But for instance, just the notion that the, the other part of the narrative of this film is that they didn't know they were abused until much later on in life because the whole thing was so pleasurable. I mean, we, I mean to me, this is a, a pro-pedophilia movie, something that the media has largely, if not totally ignored because it's inconvenient for them. What do you make of that angle? Certainly, as somebody that works um, with abuse victims and who is currently in the middle of a years-long historic abuse investigation, um, I have been very disturbed by some of the comments that Dan Reed has made in interviews. Uh, Even within the documentary, for example, he prompts um, Wade Robson to describe himself as Michael Jackson's lover. Uh, And using words like lover is not helpful when you're talking about abuse. He talks about the boys having sex with Michael Jackson. He talks about them being involved in a pleasurable, uh, romantic, emotionally and sexually fulfilling relationship. He gave an interview to the LA Times where he, he said words to the effect of, the truth is, and we need to just accept it, that a 10-year-old boy was involved in a, an emotionally and sexually fulfilling relationship with a, an adult man, and he enjoyed it. Now, that is an extremely bizarre thing to say. And... Um, I I was quite alarmed and disturbed by that. Um, It kind of has... um, uh, It kind of reminds me a little bit of the Victor Gutierrez book from the 90s, Michael Jackson Was My Lover, which had a a thank you in the back to Nambla. Um, It it has been disturbing, um, some of the language which has been used. Um, Yeah, I I think that is something which has been somewhat overlooked. And one thing that was bizarre was the... uh, the, the Barbara Streisand comments, which were outrageous. Her comments were completely outrageous, but um, they really did not differ particularly right. from some things that Dan Reed has said. Correct. Um, you know, <laughs> essentially, she was saying the same thing, which was that the kids enjoyed the relationship and they wanted to be there and they were having fun and they were fulfilled by it. So it's kind of bizarre to right. go bananas at, um, at Barbara Streisand. Right. Uh, when Dan Reed is saying the same thing. No, and I, I said that at the time. Uh, and it's also important to point out both of these guys are exceedingly heterosexual, which <laughs> any, any heterosexual man will tell you that regardless of what age it is, that whole concept is just imp- impossible. Uh, and not to mention, uh, you know, exceedingly disturbing, as you already described it. Along those lines, I'm not sure you're aware of this because I wasn't aware of it until yesterday. Dan Reed apparently gave an interview where he acknowledged he had to reshoot Wade Robson's abuse story because supposedly, and I don't buy this, 
one of his cameras broke, and somehow, I don't even know how that would have mattered, because apparently they were using two cameras, so he still would have had the footage. This is a documentary, not supposed to be a, a fictional feature film, where you, you shoot over and over again until you get the, 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 the take that you like, but that he, on a, on a completely separate day, because of allegedly this camera breaking, he acknowledges this in an interview, he has Ro- Robson retell his entire abuse story. Now, if this abuse was real, that would be enormously traumatic and highly inappropriate, especially for a documentary, would it not be? Um, well, I mean, I've um, dealt extensively over the last few years with abuse survivors, and um, I know that from my own experience that getting them to talk about what happened to them is, in my experience, always extremely challenging. Um, they they always uh, they don't they just, it's not something you want to revisit and that you want to relive. And effectively, when you ask somebody to retell their story, you are asking them to relive it. And so you'll find that they're extremely hesitant to um, tell you the story even once. Um, you know, as uh, it can take multiple appointments because they'll cancel appointments because they just say, look, I can't do it today, I just can't face it. Um, and so, you know, it is strange to me um, that you could ask somebody to do it twice in a row. Um and, and it, but maybe this is a story which has been told to kind of explain away. Because if you looked at the live tweeting, I was watching the live tweeting when um, the the documentary was first aired in the UK, and it was striking to me that the you know proportion of people who were watching it who were saying this just looks to me like hammy acting. Um, there were huge amounts of people that were not buying it, and not just. Michael Jackson fans, who were just average members of the public. So maybe this has been, maybe this is a story which is being circulated to try and explain away why some of the uh, footage looked to the general public like hammy acting. Maybe it's, oh, well, that's that's just because my camera broke, so I made him do it all again. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's not my experience that you can typically get an abuse survivor to sit down in front of a camera for eight hours, two days in a row, and tell the same story. They just don't. That you know, it's. I mean, maybe it's true. It's obviously possible, but it does not chime with my own experience. There's a lot of ways to attack these kind of stories, and I, I personally believe, Charles, that uh, the other side uh, is is using. Uh, leaving Neverland almost as a test case to see what they can get away with when it comes to forcing people to believe whatever accusers say. Let me, let me ask you about that specifically before I get to something specific that I want to ask you about. What do you make of that theory that I, I'm not even sure Oprah Winfrey really believes these guys are telling the truth, but she believes in the issue, the larger issue, so strongly that she believes that if these guys are believed, then it will make sure that everyone in the future must be believed. Because if you believe these guys, you will believe anyone. And that that's what they see Robson and Safechuck as effectively doing something for the greater good. Even though they might be lying, that they're doing something for the greater good of believing all sex abuse victims. Because if their story is believed... Everyone's believed, and it's impossible to discredit anyone. What do you make of that? I 
kind of subscribe to that, but not quite coming at it from the same angle as you. I do believe that there are huge uh, portions, huge amounts of people in the press who do not believe these allegations, uh, but who nonetheless promote and support them. Uh, I don't necessarily think they're doing it because they have a a personal uh, issue where they want to promote the belief of victims. I think a lot of it comes from um, external pressure in terms of what happens to somebody if they question an alleged victim. So, um, you know, within the culture of Me Too, uh, for example, anybody who questions any allegation, no matter how many issues there are with that allegation and how dubious it is and how contradictory and constantly changing it is, anybody who questions an allegation is immediately set upon by a social media lynch mob which demands that they lose their job, it mm-hmm. demands that they apologize, it encourages hundreds or thousands of people to spam them with uh, attacks on the internet. It's an extremely hostile environment for anybody who asks a question about an allegation. So what it's effectively doing is it's subverting the whole practice of journalism because the whole job of a journalist is to take an allegation and uh, interrogate that allegation, go away and seek evidence and seek either corroboration or discrepancies, and then, uh, you know, put that allegation really under a microscope and test it and see whether it holds weight. And what you have at the moment is a media which is completely terrified of doing that, Mm -hmm. because the moment they do that, the moment they even ask the question, they are accused of victim-blaming, they're accused of being a a pedophile sympathizer or a rape sympathizer, or they're accused of gaslighting victims. Um, So you can't really, as a journalist, it's very difficult at the moment to do your job in an ethical and professional way, because the moment you take an ethical and even approach, you are attacked as some sort of bigot or... Uh, worse, like a villain or a criminal. Worse. Yeah. Trust so, me. Trust me. I know this uh, firsthand, and I'm sure you you do as well. Um, b- before we talk a little bit more about the media, which is clearly a huge part of this, and you and I share a lot of the same beliefs about uh, how and why the media is broken. I, I want to ask you about something about Wade Robson that m- I think is being missed. There's so many problems with Wade Robson's story, but I've learned, having dealt with these kinds of stories, that uh, details, unfortunately, don't matter. Facts don't matter. Logic doesn't matter. And so I've tried to look at things a little bit differently and get out of the actual abuse story to figure out a way to show people, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. And I'm wondering whether or not you agree with me that there's something about uh, that Wade Robson has done and said that I think uh, proves my point. And that is this. As Wade, even as Wade Robson was becoming a, uh, a victim in 2011, 12, Finally, in 2013, he comes forward on the Today Show here in America. He, he said numerous times and when asked about Michael Jackson that he did not want to be as famous as Michael Jackson because he saw firsthand what being famous had done to him. And to me, the only way to interpret that as a guy who was the star witness at his criminal trial— 
and who lived through the the uh, original allegations in 1993-94 was dating uh, Michael Jackson's niece at that time. This is clear. He's been asked about it dozens and dozens and dozens of times. The only way for me to logically interpret that is that part of why he didn't want to be Michael Jackson is that he saw Jackson being the victim of false allegations of abuse. What do you make of that? I think that's definitely what he was referring to. And, you know, there were many interviews that he gave even into into 2011 and 2012 where he was defending Michael Jackson and talking about his amazing friendship and relationship with Michael Jackson and how much he taught him. And, you know, he wrote the chapter in the Opus book where he said words to the effect that Michael Jackson was the most amazing human being he'd ever met and everything he did in life was aspiring to emulate Michael Jackson. He He made... You know, lots and lots of comments long after Michael Jackson died, um, which were very positive. And, of course, he explains that by saying, well, I went into therapy and then realized that what Michael Jackson had done to me was abusive. But it kind of, for me, is, um, as an adult, I, I don't buy that. Um, you know, when he was an adult when he testified at Michael Jackson's 2005 trial. He was in his 20s. Um, he was involved in a, a long-term relationship with a woman, um, and he were and he had been denying that Michael Jackson abused him for years by then. Um, and so, for him to then come forward years later and say, "Well, I didn't realize that what Michael Jackson did to me was abusive," you know, you you just testified in an enormous abuse trial where it was very clear that what Michael Jackson was being accused of was abuse. Um, to, to kind of claim, yeah, I was in my mid-twenties and an adult and I didn't know what abuse was. I didn't know that a man in his thirties anally raping a child was abuse. I mean, what, that, that doesn't hold weight. That's nonsense. Um, so a lot of, of his narrative doesn't really make any sense. But what they do is they wheel out these supposedly, uh, these supposed like child abuse experts to come and testify or give interviews saying, oh, no, it's perfectly normal for a, a man in his late 20s to not realize that being anally raped as a child is abuse. <laughs> you know, they, they'll just wheel out an, an expert. So these experts will say uh, anything. I mean, there was an right. expert on TV just after the documentary yet who said, no, it's totally normal that somebody would want right. to direct a Cirque du Soleil spectacular for their abuser. You know, it's just not, they will say anything, these experts. Right. It's just madness. Right. Well, and, and just to, to put a point, finer point on it, in the movie, Robson says that Michael Jackson told him that if anyone finds out about what we're doing, we'll both go to jail for the rest of our lives. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't that blow up the whole idea that you didn't think anything was going that was happening was wrong? I mean, that, that, that right there, you've blown up your entire your entire narrative. But this happens consistently in so many different ways. So, Charles, I want I, I wrote a column a week or so ago about the difference between the way the American press is handling this and the U.K. press. And, and I should have broadened it to the European press because there's been some elements in the, in the European media, uh, in France, Germany, Spain, some other places that have really done a decent job. The U.K. press, in my perception, has been schizophrenic. Uh, uh, take us through specifically the tabloids. They've almost had a battle with themselves in, in almost on a daily basis, flipping back and forth on this. What is your assessment of the way the U.K. press has handled leaving Neverland? Well, there's no question that the U.K. press is unanimously anti-Michael Jackson, and it has been for at least three decades. Um, and what you're seeing is, in terms of 
online, you are seeing now a bit of back and forth about the various Mike Smallcombe revelations about the train station and the Grand Canyon and other bits and pieces that don't add up. But they're all just online clickbait articles. And then the next day they'll publish another article which says, oh, actually, that was wrong, and, and here's the other side. So it's all about just generating a story every day that people can click on. Um, in terms of the actual newspaper coverage, which is what has the real influence, um, it's all been unanimously negative. Um, the uh, the Sun in particular was publishing completely fabricated stories about FBI files and various other things, stories that were discredited a decade or more ago. Um, it's just been ridiculous, really, the, the UK press response. Um, but the UK press has, has a, a decades-long um, attitude against Michael Jackson. I mean, I, I told a story the other week on another show about, um, just by complete coincidence, I was in a, a radio station about a month ago, and I was talking about the Michael Jackson case, and on my way out, the receptionist at the radio station told me that she used to be the archivist at... Uh, the Today newspaper, which was a Rupert Murdoch-owned newspaper in the UK in the 1980s and 90s. And she told me that it was acknowledged within the newspaper uh, by the journalists that they were they had a brief from the top that they were to smear Michael Jackson, if they could, on a daily basis. They wanted an anti-Michael Jackson story news in the newspaper every single day. Um, because it sold newspapers and, and it was scandal and it was profitable. And then, I, as I told that story on a different show, the, the lady that was on the show with me said, that's funny because I knew somebody that worked at another newspaper in the UK and they told me the exact same thing. Hmm. And they would particularly use fictitious Michael Jackson stories if there was some negative political story that they were trying to bury. Um, I, firsthand, uh, in 2006... I was at the World Music Awards in London, where Michael Jackson made, uh, actually, he gave his last ever public performance at that awards ceremony. Um, and I've, ne I've seen everybody. I've seen Prince, I've seen Madonna, Stevie Wonder, George Michael, Rolling Stones, you name it. I have never, ever witnessed an artist provoke the response that Michael Jackson provoked that night at the World Music Awards. The next day, the press, unanimously in Britain, unanimously reported that he'd been booed off stage. It was fictitious. It was absolutely fictitious. He was not only not booed off stage, he stood on stage after his performance for several minutes because the crowd was screaming so loudly. All he was doing was just standing there soaking up the applause. The story was 100% fictitious, and yet every single newspaper in the UK ran it. It was really disturbing. Um, it, it almost put me off of going into journalism, actually, because I was only about uh, 18 at the time. And I was just watching and thinking, how the hell has that happened? How, how can that happen, that every newspaper in the UK can jointly run a story which I know to be fictitious? And so there is almost a conspiratorial attitude within the press, particularly in the UK, towards Michael Jackson. It's like a top-down agreement. But it's not really a conspiracy in that it's a, it's a conspiracy of self-interest. At least that's my perception of why the media is broken. And let's broaden this a little bit. Uh, you know, obviously Jackson is the context here, but, but you and I both believe that the news media is broken, and I believe it's largely because the coin of the realm is no longer truth. It's popularity and what sells. Do you agree with that? 
Yeah, well, I think what's happened is the media has undergone a, a transformation out of necessity rather than out of choice because the Internet is destroying its business model. So Correct. Uh, the Internet has created essentially an age of entitlement where everybody wants access to everything and they want it for free. So they don't want to go out and buy a DVD. They want to stream the movie for free. They don't want to go out and buy an album. They want to stream the album for free. They don't want to go out and buy a newspaper because they just want to go on Google News and read all the news for free. So the number of people that pay for their media drops every single year. And what that does is, is it in, t in turn, it means that the advertising in the media is also worth less because they're selling fewer copies. So you've got both sales revenue and ad revenue are decreasing year on year, particularly in the print industry. So newspapers are making cutbacks every single year. The number of journalists is dropping constantly because they can't afford to pay them. And so you're watching what was once a very well-resourced investigative uh, industry now being reduced so badly and, and the staff numbers being cut so badly that they can't really do their job anymore. You know, a journalist at a national newspaper in the 1980s could have gone weeks without publishing a story because they would just be working on a story right. and then when it was finished, they'd bring it to the editor. Now that same journalist would be expected to write 10 stories a day for the website. And you can't do that and write them properly at the same time. Correct. You can only churn out that many stories if you're not doing your job properly. So the media has been defunded to the point where it's basically incapable of performing its job properly. Amen. Wow, that is uh, said better than I ever could have said it, and 100% accurate. And if it's true in the UK, it's probably even worse uh, here in the United States. Last question for you, Charles, on this Jackson story. Where do you think this goes from here, and how much damage do you think will ultimately be done by leaving Neverland? I think the damage has been very limited. You've obviously seen a few... Um, a few negative consequences, like... Um, uh, there was the the fashion line that said that they're going to remove Michael Jackson influences. There was the Simpsons who removed their Michael Jackson episode from syndication, which was a very strange and ridiculous response. Um, but the majority, I mean, you've seen a handful of radio stations pull him off the air, but not many. Um, the majority is still playing him. I'm out in public in London most weeks, and I hear his music playing in shops. I see people performing to his his music in the street still. Um, so I think the damage has been very limited, actually. Uh, his uh, streams have gone up um, online. So I don't think that the documentary has done what it set out to do, and I think that's part of why uh, Dan Reed is kind of lashing out on the Internet, is I think he's quite infuriated, is my impression, that he thought he was kind of uh, breaking a Harvey Weinstein story and he was probably going to win a Pulitzer or something. And and actually it's been a bit of a damp squib and people haven't responded in the way that he wanted them to and there hasn't been the cancelling of Michael Jackson that he was envisaging and it's all sort of gone down the toilet a little bit. And now the whole credibility of his documentary has been called into question and he's actually accidentally conceded that the people criticising it are correct and that there are massive problems with it. So it's all been a bit of a disaster for him. But what I think it may have done it, you, I mean, we'll have to wait and see, but it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, you get other people coming forward now and trying to file lawsuits and thinking that the sentiment against Michael Jackson has turned uh, sufficiently that they'll be able to get away with it. Um, we'll just have to wait and see, really. But, but I think that the impact of the documentary as we sit here today 
has been probably 5% of what Dan Reed thought it was going to be, and I think he's really angry about it. Well, that's some good news, and on that, uh, that's a place uh, that was probably a good spot for us to end. Uh, Charles, thanks so much for your great work on this. Uh, please make sure that you keep in touch, as I'm sure there'll be other things that will be learned about the film, and we really appreciate that there is a kindred spirit for, for John Ziegler in the U.K. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. All right, thanks, Charles. Take care. Cheers. Much thanks to Charles Thompson for his thoughts on all of this, which I think are um, really profound and important. And I love the fact that he's fairly optimistic about the fact that the, the documentary has not had the impact that he had hoped. I'm generally a pessimist, so I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop, and I do wonder whether or not long term there has been far more damage done by this documentary than it deserved. And I think from my perspective, what I'm more concerned about is what's this even going to do to the larger issue of sex abuse cases in general and whether or not it's going to be literally impossible to discredit any case. And I'll be very honest. I mean, look, I hate injustice. I hate unfairness. I think Michael Jackson got a very, very, very raw deal in this film. It's now made me question whether or not he ever did anything uh, that was wrong with children. But I also have my dog in this hunt has been my work for the last seven years in the Penn State case. And if Wade Robson and James Safechuck are believed, then there's zero. I mean, there's always been very low percentage, but there is zero percent chance of ever turning that injustice around. So that and that's even way beyond the Penn State case, because, you know, these cases aren't going to stop. I mean, they're just in the Me Too era. They're going to get more and more prevalent, and they're going to be more and more injustices, especially if these are the new rules. If these are the new rules, look out. This is going to happen consistently, especially when there's money involved. So, so from a bigger, broader perspective, that's the part of this that really bothers me. I don't want to see Michael Jackson destroyed over something he didn't do, but I also don't want these to be the new rules for evaluating child sex abuse or any kind of abuse allegations because if we believe james safechuck and wade robson and i agree with charles that a lot of people in the media don't actually believe them but they don't have the guts to go against them then anybody will be believed no matter how ridiculous the claim because these these claims are the most easily discredited in a logical world that i've ever seen in my life now i did mention that uh you know what i would hope to have been doing today was watching the final round of the masters and as I speak, uh, the, the final round is about midway through. Uh, I don't even know what the current scoring is. I know that uh, Tiger Woods is, uh, was even par through about the first uh, four holes. And uh, he, led, he started this day two shots back uh, of uh, Francesco Molinari, who might be the best player in the world right now. He's the defending British Open champion. For those who who don't recall or don't know my involvement with the Tiger Woods story, it goes back all the way to about 1994-95, where I uh, predicted very early on in his amateur career that he was going to be the greatest golfer in the modern history of the game, if not the the the, uh, the game in the history of the game. And you can argue whether or not it's him or or Jack Nicholas. And um, I invested an enormous amount of my life, more than the average golf fan, way more than the average golf fan, in Tiger Woods. I created a website just before he exploded in 2000 uh, called TigerWoodsIsGod.com. It got written about all over the world. I was legitimately the biggest uh, Tiger Woods fan on the planet. 
uh, at least among people who were not completely crazy. <laughs> and, although my wife might disagree with that. <laughs> my wife might put me in the category of being completely crazy. But he, he was an enormous portion of my life. Uh, I, I mean, without even getting into all the details, I mean, when he played in the major championship, that was bigger than a holiday for me. And it got through, me through a lot of very difficult times in my life. And, and a huge portion of what I was looking forward to in life was his pursuit of Jack Nicholas's all-time record of 18 uh, professional major championships. And when the scandal hit, uh, I was crushed. A lot of people were crushed, but I was particularly crushed. In fact, my daughter, because she learned this from her mother, Grace Ziegler, who's now almost uh, seven years old, uh, she learned about Tiger Woods by knowing him as the person who, quote, broke daddy's heart. That's how she knew Tiger Woods. Because I, I still to this day have uh, a couple very large framed uh, autographed photos of uh, Tiger in my office. Of course, she wants to know who that is. And her mom told her, that's the man who broke daddy's heart. And that's probably the best way to describe Tiger Woods to me. He broke my heart. My heart wasn't very large to begin with at the time. <laughs> Uh, this was before we had uh, kids uh, or even married. But uh, whatever I had of a heart w- was pretty much crushed by that. It wasn't that I was stunned that he was having affairs. It was more just the way that he had handled the whole thing. And, uh, and then, of course, I believed that you know his game would never return to what the way it was before that. And it has not uh, to this point and probably never will. Um, but I'm also a forgiving person. And I believe that if someone suffers enough that they do deserve some sense of redemption and the opportunity for recovery. And he clearly suffered an enormous amount because of the scandal. He lost his marriage. Uh, he lost a good portion of his fortune. Uh, he lost uh, at least some of the, his relationship with his children. He lost the public's respect. He lost his game for a long time. Then the injuries really started to compound, and he totally lost his game. I mean, nobody, no player of his level ever lost their game as much as Tiger Woods lost his. And I was among those who said, all right, he's done. It's over. In fact, I wrote a cover story for the weekly Louisville magazine, Louisville, where I used to host a talk show at WHAS in Louisville. Uh, The 2014 PGA Championship was in Louisville, and uh, a friend of mine runs the uh, newspaper, Aaron Yarmouth, the son of uh, John Yarmouth, the congressman who we've had on the show many times. And I wrote a cover story where we literally buried Tiger Woods. It was over. And that prediction held true for a couple of years. It was over until last year. When, against all odds, Tiger made really what the, was the most stunning comeback uh, that I have ever witnessed in any realm of sports. Of someone of that magnitude going from the total depths of physical, uh, psychological despair to almost reaching the pinnacle of the sport again. Where he contends in two major championships and he wins the tour championship, which is a little bit of a... A deceiving situation because it was a very limited field and the Ryder Cup was about to happen and you know other guys were not even focused on it and some people didn't even really focus on winning that tournament. It's, it was a unique situation. It was great that he won it, but it wasn't a major championship by any stretch of the imagination. 
But uh, I have have now come almost full circle from having heckled Tiger Woods at the 2010 U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, uh, which got written about on the back page of Sports Illustrated, though thankfully my name was not attached to it. I made sure of that because it was two weeks before my wedding, and my wife wife would not have been pleased about that. Uh, But I, I went from hating Tiger Woods and literally heckling him at the 2010 U.S. Open to now rooting for him again. And it's so much so that on Friday, when he moved into serious contention, my wife asked me whether or not I would be rooting for Tiger uh, this weekend, which kind of surprised me because I thought I had pretty much been on the record that I'm now, well, it'll never be the same as it was. I'm now rooting for Tiger and that I've forgiven him. I actually got choked up talking about what it would mean if he won. And my wife was like, are you getting choked up? Are you seriously getting choked up? Really? Seriously? That, you, that, that's, that's amazing. She couldn't believe it. And, you know. It's just flat out ridiculous. Well, you know, it is and it isn't. Um, because in a lot of ways, and I'm hardly alone in this, Tiger Woods is like our, for my generation of golf fans, and people maybe a little bit older, a little bit younger, I'm 52 years old, he's kind of like our golden child. He was our, our golden child, and we've watched him grow up, and he exceeded our expectations, which were already ridiculously high, in every possible way. And then it all crashed and burned. And so now, when we thought he was gone forever, he's kind of like the prodigal son. You know, the biblical story of the prodigal son coming back. Now, can he come all the way back and pull off a... Jack Nicholas-like 1986 Masters victory. I have been saying all week long, I don't believe it. It's possible, but I don't believe it. In fact, on last week's podcast, I said he'll contend. He'll make the cut. He'll contend, but he can't win because his driver isn't straight enough and his, he's not consistent enough on his short putts. And frankly, even though he's, as, as of this moment, in very strong contention in the final round of the Masters, those predictions have been accurate. He missed a lot of short putts. Otherwise, he'd be in the lead. The old Tiger Woods would not have missed those short putts. And he got incredibly lucky with some stray tee shots, especially on Saturday. He hit three tee shots that could have been disasters where he turned out perfectly fine and was incredibly lucky. And apparently the same thing happened on uh, number two today where he went way left in an area of the golf course which is normally death. And he survived with a par. So he's getting lucky. Uh, whether or not that can survive, uh, you know, the the crucible of a final round of a, of a Masters against a guy named Molinari who's playing exceedingly well, as well as other players who were just behind him or tied with him, uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it would be as big or bigger than what uh, was the 1986 Masters title for Jack Nicholas, which, in my view, was the most emotional sporting event of my life. Uh, and in the lives of most other golfers. This would probably exceed that because of the fact that Tiger had fallen into such despair and was thought to be gone forever. And then you get this this opportunity to see him uh, maybe just one more time uh, do what was always his destiny. Of course, this would even be more special because we saw 14 major championship wins with Tiger Woods as a superhero. This would be his first one as a normal human being. And by the way, a more likable human being, someone who seems a lot happier, seems like a nicer guy. So to win 14 as Superman 
and then to win one as a much nicer Clark Kent, uh, that would be a hell of a bookend for the most remarkable career, certainly, of the modern era of golf. But as of this moment, I'm still not believing. <laughs> I'm, I'm a skeptic through and through, and I, I just don't think he's going to be able to do it. I think there'll be a blunder, whether it's a short putt or a stray drive, whatever it will be, I think he's going to come up just a bit short. But unfortunately, uh, my life being my life, uh, you know, I, I, thankfully I'll be able to put it on DVR, but even the DVR situation is all screwed up. I mean, this is a first-world problem. Uh, but because this all happened at the very last moment, this is basically like if they took the Super Bowl that was scheduled for you know six thirty in, in the evening and on less than twenty four hours notice said, "Oh, we're going to put it in the morning." That of course would never happen. But they're doing this to try to avoid the thunderstorms, and, and I have a feeling they might not even be able to pull that off. There's still a chance if the thunderstorms come a little bit earlier, this thing thing might end up uh, going into Monday, which would really be a tragedy because then they would you know they still have a Monday finish. Uh, even though they they obliterated the whole uh, essence of the tournament by by moving up the tee times, and let's be clear why they did this. This is the part that pisses me off most of all. They, they did this because of fear of lawsuits. We're in the, living in this bizarre world now, where because we have all this amazing technology and they can tell exactly where lightning strikes are, you would think that that would give you more freedom. To push the envelope, right? Because the guy who's monitoring the lightning strikes will go, well, no, it's still five miles away or ten miles away, and therefore we can keep playing. But that's it actually works in the exact opposite way because because they have the technology, they have total vulnerability to lawsuits if someone ends up getting struck by lightning. So now if there's any lightning anywhere, anywhere close, they're going to have to shut the whole thing down, and they know as soon as they shut it down, when the bad weather comes, they won't be able to play for the rest of the day, and they'll have to finish on a Monday when no one cares and everyone's at work. So that's the core of this. In the old days, before we had the technology, they would never have done this. We would have been gone normal, and until someone actually saw lightning, they would have kept playing. But no, no, we got to be super VC, super safe, and it's all because of fear of lawsuits. Uh, and so uh, what could be the, the greatest day in the modern history of golf, uh, I'm going to be missing live. Uh, and uh, even the DVR is going to be a pain in the ass because CBS had no expectation of this happening. So now I've got the the, uh, the final round chopped up in like uh, eight different uh, half hour segments of uh, of uh, other shows labeled you know CBS this morning and all sorts of other bullshit. So and la- one last thought on this: if uh, before this podcast comes out, you hear of a of a man uh, killing himself in a traffic jam on the 101 in Los Angeles. <laughs> It's probably me. Just just presume, oh, my God, Ziggler killed himself because he got stuck in traffic trying to get home to watch the end of the Masters because <laughs> that's the way my life works. There'll be a, there will be some catastrophic traffic event on the 101 coming home after doing the podcast. So bottom line, I hope you've enjoyed this hour because <laughs> – because I'm paying for it. And all I ask of you is two things. Uh, one, share it via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And uh, number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, do yourself a favor and pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. 
What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.